You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. So we're looking at Matthew chapters 1 and 2, uh, and uh, mainly uh, we noticed right away that there that Matthew opens his gospel with eight stories, all of which center around two momentous events, the birth of Jesus and the baptism of Jesus. Four stories about the birth and four stories about the baptism. And both of those uh, momentous events have a preparatory story, a story that precedes them. In the case of the birth of Jesus, it's the genealogy and the long history of preparation God made to bring that nation to be ready to welcome Jesus into the world, which they did not do, which leaves the impression that the gospel failed right out of the gate. And as many of you know, Romans, uh, Paul wrote in, to the Romans three chapters that are devoted to the question of whether, in fact, this means that the gospel failed. It didn't but it leaves that generic impression anyway. Um, so if you want to know more about that, there'll be a video in the next month <laughs> worth a, a, a couple of minutes on that. Uh, so eight stories total, and we're looking at the first four. We've looked at two, the preparations for the coming of Jesus across the history of Israel and then the uh, birth of Jesus, which solved a massive problem, which is that Israel's kings and governors and leaders had failed miserably to lead that nation. I think we can relate, and I don't mean to our, the governance of us, I mean our own governance. We can hardly govern our own lives, lead let someone else's lives. And so we needed a savior and a governor, someone to deliver us from sin and someone to lead and guide and rule and reign over our daily lives. Now we get to the effects of that birth. What was the effect? What were the uh, results of that birth? And uh, Matthew chooses to tell us two stories, which are the response to that birth, but not just the response, but also the effect. Uh, So let's just uh, briefly uh, read some of the verses of these two stories, and I'll summarize the bits in between. Chapter 2, verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, and note that Matthew now introduces just two more pieces of data that he hadn't talked about previously. One, the geography of where Jesus was born, Bethlehem, and secondly, the chronology At what particular period of history was he born? Answer, in the days of Herod, the king of the Jews. And those two pieces of information are what you need. It's like stage setting, you know, where they change out the background of the scene so so what follows makes sense. Uh, So, uh, behold, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, that is to say, the magi of the Jews, 
The Magi were court officials in the East, Gentile court officials who helped uh, lead. You remember the story of the Magi in Nebuchadnezzar's day when he had that wicked dream of the giant colossus of composite metals out in the desert. He consulted his Magi to see how to interpret it. Uh, so the Pharisees and the scribes were gathered to together by Herod, probably to his uh, palace, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Verse 5, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And they quote from Micah, the first part of the quotation, and then the last bit where it says, who will shepherd my people Israel is from Second Samuel, quoting two different prophets by the time they're done to tell him that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And I think you all know what happened next, that uh, Herod ascertained the exact timing of when uh, the star appeared to them in the east. That This was for plan A. We'll talk about plan A and plan B a little bit later. And he sent them to Bethlehem. Why did he send them to Bethlehem? Because he's in charge. He's the king of the Jews. That was his title, king of the Jews. Though an Edomite by origins, by family origins. His family had had moved into the south, just beneath Jerusalem, just beneath Bethlehem, uh, as all the Edomites had. And they had converted to Judaism in the days of the Maccabees, uh, some decades before this, and eventually became kings of the Jews, uh, as he was. Uh, and so he sends them. And he says, you send me word, and I'll come and worship him, verse 8. And verse 9, it says, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And that's one of those verses you've heard a thousand times, and so you sort of skip right over it. But I'll read it again to you. When they saw the star, they rejoiced. Oh, no, no, he doesn't just stop there. They rejoiced exceedingly. Nope, not enough information to put emphasis on it. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Are you getting the point now? And, of course, they, went, they found the house. They went in. They bowed down and worshipped. Of course, worship here doesn't mean quite what we do here on Sunday mornings. Uh, but means they, they worship the way you would bow down before a king to do obeisance unto a king and to uh, acknowledge his authority and gave him his gifts. And then, verse 12, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way, and their lives were spared. Because plan A did not involve them getting back to the east. So God intervened. But it's interesting that he didn't use a star at this point, isn't it? Why not just keep using the star? Why now send a, a dream with an angel messenger, that's the assumption, communicating to them? Hmm? Uh, <clears throat> and so they went away. Now we get our second story. Uh, when they had departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, verse 13, and you'll notice God doesn't send a star to Joseph and lead Joseph to Egypt with a star, uh, but uses a direct uh, message, message from an angel. 
and tells him to flee because of the danger that Herod is going to seek the life of the child. And so he leaves and remains in Egypt. Verse uh, 15, out of this was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. And then Herod, of course, realizes that he's been had and the Magi never returned. And kings aren't used to people not doing what they say. But you see, he was the king of the Jews. And they were Gentiles. Those are humble moments, aren't they? When the one, you think you, you kind of get used to being in control of things, and then you suddenly realize how small the pond really is. And there are powers outside of your control. That doesn't feel very good when you're trying to manipulate and control everything that happens, and you're used to everybody being in fear at what you say because they know the authority you carry. And so he flies into a rage and goes to plan B. Plan A, of course, was to kill the Magi and the baby, the Messiah. And that way, the story goes away, and his, the threat to his throne is gone, and he can maintain his control, his grip over Israel, which was a rather tenuous grip. He had to become very good friends with the Romans, was educated in Rome, actually and knew the imperial family personally in order to keep his control over Israel. Um, he had to make friends, so to speak, with the Gentiles. Then uh, was fulfilled, he of course, plan B, he had to slaughter all the children that were roughly within the time frame he could ascertain from when the star first appeared, which meant two years old and upwards, or downwards. So he slaughtered all the children. The historians estimate somewhere around 20. Somewhere around 20 for that region, for the Bethlehem and the surrounding hills, which it speaks of, is what they estimate for male children about that age, given what we know of the population of the time and so on. Uh, and this fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But now let me read it to you again, the same way I read that verse earlier in the first story. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping. Not just weeping. Weeping and lamentation. No, not just lamentation. Weeping and loud. Lamentation. Let's say it again. Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted. Do you see how the two stories are so different? In the one, there's nothing but supreme, undiluted joy at the response to the birth of Jesus. And on the other story, weeping and loud lamentation. You can't miss the contrast, can you? It's as if it's two different worlds responding to the birth of Jesus. The effect of that birth created pure joy and unspeakable sorrow. The joy, of course, was among Gentiles, and the sorrow fell on the Jews. The initial response to the birth of Jesus is a fork, is a 
what would you call it? It's forecasting, yeah. What's going to come at the macro level across history as the nation of Israel rejects Jesus and in a rage ultimately crucifies him. And this leads to great sorrow on that nation, a sorrow that persists in some ways to this day. And among Gentiles, for the first time in history, hundreds of thousands, millions, and now hundreds of millions and multi-millions of Gentiles who've come in joy to worship Jehovah and to receive his son as the king. And of course, then Herod died and Joseph was told to come back to Israel. He comes back to Israel. He sees that Herod's son Archelaus is in charge, verse 22. And so he heads to the north to Galilee as the angel instructs him and he goes off grid. And he settles in Nazareth because Nazareth is nowhere. And that way the kings will and Jerusalem will be unaware that Joseph and his family are living in Palestine. Nobody cares about Nazareth. As Nathaniel will later say, what good could come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Uh, so he came to be known as the Nazarene, which is an insult of his origins, that he's from nowhere. As the prophets had said, the Messiah would be despised and condemned, or uh, condescended to, rather, uh, condemned also. Uh, and they would not think he could be the Messiah even given his origins, all right? So that's a sort of a thumbnail sketch then of the two stories and how the two stories sort of balance each other out. The effect of Jesus' birth, its joy and its sorrow. But then that gets us back to this original question now, which is the bit about the star. What was all that about? God selectively using a star at certain key moments, it seems, and otherwise mostly using the direct messenger, angelic messenger, in dreams. Why would God do such a thing? Um, well, uh, we know one reason God sent the, these magi the star, at least at the basic level. We know why he sent them a star. Why was that? as a guide, yeah, for the purpose of guiding, but why send them a star? This is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that all nations would... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a fulfillment of what God, that all the families of the earth would be blessed. But why, why these magi? Why not send it to somebody down in Egypt or someone uh, in Israel, for that matter? Why not send it to Herod and the, and the Sanhedrin and the chief priests and so on? The area they came from? Maybe the east? Yes, maybe the east because of why? Because cause that's where Abraham was from. Yeah, that's where he was from. Uh, we've already had a number of references to Abraham. Yeah, Daniel. Uh, was someone add, I thought I heard someone else start to say something. Um, well, let me ask you this. If I said the Lord sent the great, the, not the great, uh, what do we call it? The Big Dipper. Yeah, um, The Big Dipper. The Lord sent it to us. It would be very American, wouldn't it, to think of the Big Dipper as for us? You know, When you're a little kid, you think the Big Dipper is in America. 
<laughs> right? But that's not the way stars work, actually, is it? <laughs> is it? I mean, aren't the stars, by definition, the things that everybody sees or can see? You can be guided by the Big Dipper in the Mediterranean, can you not? Yep. <laughs> so, in one sense, it's not really true to say God. Well, I mean, unless this was a star only they could see, but even that would be clear. Why would he send it to them? Yes, because they actually, they weren't just interested in the truth. You know, there's a lot of people, I talk to people all the time, they claim to be truth seekers, they're rationalists, they want to know the truth of things. Uh, Even his atheist uh, majesty himself, Richard Dawkins, is continually talking about how we need to be a world that pursues the truth. He has been canceled by the atheist organizations now in America, most of them. Uh, And he says, I'm just a truth seeker. But there's a difference between being interested in the truth and wanting to know the truth and loving the truth. These magi loved the truth. You know, little uh, Gresham, uh, the stepson of C.S. Lewis, he uh, spent some time, you know, with C.S. Lewis before he died when he was just in his early, early teens. And he was asked, what's the best lesson C.S. Lewis ever taught you? And he said, to love the truth. He told me to love the truth above all things and I will do well in life. To love the truth, you see. The Magi weren't in- just interested in the truth as some sort of abstract plaything, like a, like a kind of chess match or a kind of uh, discovery thing like Columbus did, you know. The Magi were interested in the truth, and they brought gifts, and they were prepared to submit to the truth and bring their lives into alignment with the truth and to obey it. So... Whether it's true that they saw, just they saw the star, well, even in the East, they alone surely couldn't have, weren't the only ones who could have seen the star, right? I mean, at least in the East, I'm I'm inclined to think the star was more visible than that, since it's a star after all. But even if it was just sent to them, it would be something more people could see, yeah. I guess I would question whether it was a star. Well, I'm going by what Matthew actually calls it. Well, but there's messengers and there's messengers. Well, here's I mean, its. I see it more as a the Holy Spirit. From my point. Of view. Well, M- Matthew mentions the Holy Spirit multiple times in right. the first four chapters, and never. Yeah. So I'm I'm going by simply the way he not only the way what he calls it, but the way he describes it. It uh, appeared. It arose like a star would, and uh, and then it appeared, and they followed it. Uh, to it's not obviously some it, it seems to be maybe not a typical star well, but none the as a man he appeared oh. as a burning bush. maybe it was we we don't know behind the veil sort of what we can't say like what the chemistry makeup was of the star you know but it's something that appeared in the sky that led them and and however it worked they interpreted it as the birth of the king of the Jews which meant they had clearly been seeking uh, whether they had the book of Daniel which was written in the east. Uh, or the Pentateuch, which clearly was ubiquitous throughout Babylon because the Jews had brought it there. The Pentateuch hadn't it prophesied about how the scepter would come from Jacob 
would rise like a star. Maybe they had that verse from Numbers chapter 24. You know, whatever it was, they interpreted it that way. So the question is, why even if that were the case, let's say it's an angel manifesting as a star, it's still the question of why not just be a direct messenger in a dream? Or even if it were the Holy Spirit, why not just call it the Holy Spirit? Uh, it still raises the same sort of question. It just backs it up one step. So um, uh, what's the point? Um, what's the point? Well, the point is that the star, at the very least, now they were magi, of course. Magi were into astronomy and astrology. That was part of their skill set. And maybe God just used that. Maybe that's part of the reason. God just used what they were already familiar with to lead them, even though it was a pagan idea. Nonetheless, God used it to bring them to the truth. Well, that would be fine too. Uh, and maybe all those answers are sufficient to account for why God. But then the fact that he used a dream later seems to still leave the question outstanding. And so I would point out simply how the story works and you can decide if you think that's an explanation, okay? This is, yeah. I've been to some planetariums where they go back in time. You know, you're looking up at this huge dome, and it that seems to indicate two or three planets aligned about this time. Yes, yeah, there's some. There's different theories about that, yeah. Yeah, and there's different theories about what the star, like there's some that are in alignment of planets and so on, yeah. But this star is not acting like a normal star. It is. doesn't seem to be. I guess I look back to Genesis when the fire by night guided yeah. people. Yeah. This star is guiding these people. And if you follow a star, a normal star, you don't get uh, I totally agree. It does not, it's not described in, in a normal star, but of course the event that he's sort of uh, suggesting is itself a t it's not normal, right? It's a special event, uh, although it's out of the normal circuitry sort of orbiting of the stars. Yeah. So orbiting is not the word. The star, they stop in Jerusalem to ask. Yes, that's the story. The star reappears, so they start following it. So I'm wondering why they had to stop and ask if they were following the star, and the star is what eventually led them. Yeah, that's how you're. That's now we're getting closer to what the story actually is. Always good to just pay attention to the story. If God had appeared to them in a dream through an angel, He could have simply said, "The King of the Jews is born in Bethlehem. Get over there," and they would have gone straight to Bethlehem. But the fact that the star doesn't speak directly leaves their destination unclear. They actually don't know where to go. They go to the most logical place one would go if the king of the Jews was born. They go to Jerusalem. And they consult with the king of the Jews, the current one. So if God had simply appeared to them a dream and told them exactly what to do, they would have gone straight to Bethlehem. And Herod and the Jews in, in Jerusalem would never have known. So one of the things that the star does is it ends up placing the Magi in Jerusalem, and that stirs up a response from Jerusalem that the king of the Jews, not, of course, now just one of Herod's kids. That's obvious. This is the son of David, the real bona fide king of the Jews, the Messiah that they kept genealogies for. There was a famous rabbi in their day, Rabbi Akiba, 
he, he knew from the genealogy that he was a son of David. He knew he wasn't the king, but he was a descendant of David, and it was noted. They kept the genealogies in anticipation. So uh, here was this one who was going to be the true Messiah, and that allowed a response from Jerusalem which otherwise wouldn't quite have come. But then why not simply send the star directly to them? If that was the point. Well, that wasn't the only point, of course. But that's part of the story. Now, let me tell you a little interesting fact. Herod was a practicing Jew. Now, he uh, used the Old Testament in some curious ways, taking multiple wives and so on, which most Jews didn't. But it was Old Testament, I guess. And uh, he had some things you might have heard about uh, that are rather untoward. But definitely at the most basic external level, he was a practicing Jew who participated in the worship of the temple and so on, and kept the law of Moses, and didn't shy away from identifying as Jew. Um, when the Magi said, uh, yes, we've come to Jerusalem, they're in their entourage, and they're t announcing the great news that the son of David has been born, and they say, now, the problem is we don't know where he where would the Messiah be born. We don't know that. We're not uh, very knowledgeable. You know, we're Gentiles. And Herod had one of those moments sometimes Christians have. It's a really simple question about the Bible. And Herod's like, uh, well, uh, well, everybody knows where the Messiah is born. But really, we should have a committee get together and uh, give their recommendations and make sure the interpretation is authoritative, you see. Herod didn't know where the Messiah was to be born. You find that strange? Something so elementary in Judaism? He had no idea. He brought the Sanhedrin together, they knew. They could quote the scriptures. It's a funny thing about that thing. Where'd they get the idea from that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem? Yeah, from Scripture, from Micah, from Samuel. There were some other verses, too, they could have cited about the Messiah. Some of the Psalms, some parts of the Pentateuch, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Malachi, and so on. Those books, you see, were right underneath Herod's nose all the time, every day. You might say they were a bit like the stars of the heaven. You could see them anytime you wanted to, if you really love the truth. The funny, that's the thing about a star, you see, anybody can see it, if they want to. Herod wasn't really interested, was he? And he represented many Jews in the end. They didn't really love the truth, even the ones who knew a lot of the scripture. And uh, they were like, not uh, they were not unlike many people through history and still today. The scripture's there. Is the scripture hidden away? The Bible locked in a vault like it is in the novel Brave New World? No. 
It's on everybody's phone if they want it for free. And how many people actually care to look? How many people love it? Love the truth it reveals and are prepared to submit to it. It's not for lack of being able to see it if they want to. So um, this, anyway, was the case of Herod. And the Magi did love the truth, and they came with great joy. And while Herod was running around in a panic, they were at peace and had great sense of security and joy and comfort as they bowed the knee to the child who was the son of David. And God rewarded them with salvation. He delivered them. If they had gone back to Herod, of course, there would have been great weeping and lamentation. Instead, God saved them. And he saved them directly. At that point, the star wasn't any important anymore. It had done its work, and God made it crystal clear what the instructions were for salvation. It's like that a lot for people who are seeking, was for me anyway, as an atheist, first seeking God. It was all so vague. I remember seeing out on a country club golf course behind our house trying to communicate with the universe, literally. Is there anything out there that can read the mind of a human being on earth? that has some high, sophisticated intelligence. Just testing, you know, whether there were some beings out there, aliens or something, that could read the mind. It's one of the little tests I did in high school. It was also opaque, you know. I, uh, but then salvation gets very clear. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The next story uh, we can cover in just... Well, we don't do just to it, of course, justice to it, of course, and covering it in three minutes. Yeah. One quick thing on that point. Mm. Um, and it, the scripture doesn't say anything about this one way or the other, but by implication, I think it, it, it suggests this. Mm. The scribes and the Pharisees have these guys coming from the east, saying that we're, we're trying to figure out where the Messiah is going to be born, following the star. Herod wants to know. They actually have the answer through scripture. And Bethlehem's four to six miles away. Yeah. The best we can tell, they didn't go. Yeah. The, the, part of their response. Yeah, their, their response, much like Herod's, was even a step further. They actually know, they theoretically have been looking for this, right? Yeah. Awaiting this, and we don't get any indication, I don't think, that they, they took the four or six mile trip to go see no. it for themselves. We were told they were in a panic. They were troubled. All Jerusalem was troubled. Why? Because the whole power structure was threatened. And uh, if you know anything about history... <laughs> Generally speaking, those in power don't respond very well when there's a real possibility they will not continue to remain in power or there's a threat to their power. Oh, yes, he wanted plan A was to kill the Christ, not all the children at first, you know. So, this is the response of the next story when he, because now Herod, you see, can't see the truth. Because God has sent the Magi the other way, you see. Herod had the scriptures right under his nose and could see the truth and wasn't interested in it. And what happens to his vision as the story goes on? It gets darker. He cannot see now. He's blind to what's happened. And so in a, in a fit of rage, he sends some soldiers to, to uh, butcher all these children. 
And to what end? Well, it's to maintain his control, you see. And what happened shortly thereafter? The man died. What was the point of slaughtering all those children? It's all vanity of vanities, isn't it? All that passion and zeal and pseudo-righteousness to accomplish the great goods in the world and to establish justice in the world at such a cost and to no end. If one doesn't love the truth and love the God of truth. And there was great suffering in that nation and God allowed it. They, as, uh, again, they could have avoided Jerusalem. This never would have happened. But God gave them a chance to respond. They could have responded differently. And they didn't. And there came with it great sorrow. You know the little verse about Rachel? Do you remember Rachel's story? She gave birth to her final son, the final son of the twelve sons of Jacob. And she died in childbirth. She was just north of Bethlehem. And she wept as she died. That's the point. And she named, she lived long enough to name the child Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. But Benjamin, as we know him, became a dear soul, the youngest of the twelve, to his father. And his father renamed him Benjamin, son of my right hand. Many centuries later, in the days of Jeremiah, when the Babylonians came, in, as a judgment from God, because that nation had disobeyed the revelation of the truth that God had given them for centuries. He sent the Babylonians to judge them. They came and killed a number of Jews and took a number captive, and they gathered at Ramah, the very place where Rachel died, just north of Bethlehem. And the whole nation wept, and Jeremiah was there among the captives. And he later wrote that it was like hearing Rachel's voice echoing through the canyons, weeping again for her children. That nation had failed. It needed something to save it. And Jeremiah, right after the little quotation about Rachel weeping, gives the answer. He says the Messiah will have to come and establish a new covenant. That's the very famous passage of the new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31. And of course, that Messiah did come and he took the cup and he held it out and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And he made another offer to that nation. How often I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her little chicks under her wings and you didn't want to. Unless we think it was unfair, so to speak, that God would allow Israel to suffer so in their rejection of Messiah. If you read the story closely, you must note that the Messiah himself and his family was suffering along with them. 
They had to flee for their lives and go live in Egypt and then come back and live in hiding and in fear constantly. And as the Messiah grew grew up, was he spared, was he? The lamentation, the loud lamentation, the new covenant in my blood. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word, for these stories that come to us from the pen of Matthew and the inspiration of your spirit to record for us the gospel, the beginning of the gospel, and how these events are the gospel and foretold what was to come. We pray that we too would continue to offer to the world the Savior, the Son of David, who shed his own blood and knows what real suffering and injustice is, that he might save and and also to govern by his new covenant the lives of those who follow him every day by his word and by the holy scriptures we still can discover search in and learn the truth and submit to it and obey it we worship him as the magi did and we pray in his precious name amen you've been listening to audio from the cathedral church of the advent if you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.